Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Friday. This is Seattle Now. This week, a spanking new addition to the Seattle Convention Center has a hefty price tag. The city teamed up with SDOT to give 10,000 people in affordable housing free unlimited ORCA cards, and we take a look at the inner beauty the city's multifamily housing has to offer. Converge Media's Basic Gordon and political consultant Crystal Fincher are here to break down the week. But first, let's get you caught up. King County could end homelessness in five years. That is, if we're willing to pay more than $8 billion. That from a new plan drafted by the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, which is hoping to make it a reality. The plan calls for adding 23,000 temporary housing units at a regional cost of $3.5 billion every year after the initial investment. If you've got something to say about this, say it now. The plan is up for public comment. It's set to be finalized in April. 2022 was a pretty rough year for anyone traveling by plane, but it was a great year for Alaska Airlines' bottom line. Seattle Times reports the company made even more money last year than it did in 2019, despite snarls in air travel. It's planning to expand its workforce and its fleet this year, and it's sending many employees home with large bonus checks for meeting targets. And get ready for a chilly weekend. A blast of Arctic air is forecast to send us into the 20s Saturday night. We could even see some snow. On the plus side, it'll be nice and sunny Sunday. So good news for all you cold weather hikers and skiers. It's Friday again. This week was a lot of terrible. It started with the shattering and heartbreaking news of mass gun violence, which touches all of us, and tragic pedestrian collisions and deaths in Seattle, which has become all too common in our city. Casual Friday can be a space for lightness, fun, and reflection of the news of the week. And this week, we are not going to talk about these events. But please know that this news is weighing heavy on all of our hearts. Crystal Fincher is here. She's a political consultant and hosts Hacks and Wonks on KVRU. Great to talk to you, Crystal. Great to talk to you. And Basa Gordon is here. She's the digital manager at Converge Media. Hear her on the air from 7 p.m. to 12 a.m. on Hits 106.1. Basa, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? So you two, after much delay, pandemic and construction related, the $2 billion Seattle Convention Center's new expansion is opening this afternoon. You can't miss it. It's right across the street from the Paramount Theater on 9th and Pine. It's 14 stories high and has 10 football fields worth of meeting space and conference rooms. Really wild, lots of glass and light. And it's a big deal for the city and has the potential to be a huge draw. Just to lay the groundwork, pre-pandemic, the convention center was always pretty full, pretty busy. And I guess the feedback was that it was just a little small. So this new space is supposed to accommodate even more people. But this is the point I want to make. When the idea was pitched all those years ago. The new space was supposed to bring $260 million per year in visitor spending. We are a different city today. Crystal, is Seattle still a big draw for tourism and conventions like it was pre-pandemic? Well, I think those are two different questions, really. I do think Seattle is a big draw for tourism. Is it a big draw for conventions? That is a different question, and I don't know that that answer is yes. We're working differently today than we were after a pandemic where we're all still concerned about space, um, sharing space with people. This pandemic is ongoing. We're in a different place. 
People are not occupying office space in Seattle. Fewer than half of the downtown Seattle office workers are there now than they were pre-pandemic. So I just don't know, especially with this period of time where we're hearing about mass layoffs, a potential recession. I don't know that the convention center is going to have the kind of business and volume that it used to. Yeah, really interesting. Basa, what do you think? Everybody who visits the convention center is a potential customer in this town, but if they're not there, that's not going to plan out. So what's funny about me is that um, I've officially been living downtown for three years now, right? And before I started living downtown, I lived in Renton and I actually worked at Old Navy, Victoria's Secret, and T-Mobile. Of the three places that I worked at back in the day, only T-Mobile is left and I'm surprised that they're even still holding on. But what I do remember from working at T-Mobile is there were a lot of conventions coming on, like Comic-Con and like different sneaker events. With COVID, there's not a lot of that happening anymore. So I would say, I hate to say it, the convention looks nice, but I think that everyone has found other venues to where they don't just need the convention center. The city didn't stop just because the convention center closed. I mean, if anything, we might use it for something, but Climate Pledge, we have T-Mobile Park, we have, you know, Lumen, we have just all these other venues that have enough space. Like the convention center, yes, is going to be utilized, but I mean, they've had plenty of conventions at WAMU at this point. You know, I love the convention center personally because where else can you run into 18,000 Mary Kay ladies alongside 20,000 infectious disease specialists in the same day. It is a really, really cool place to hang out. But you're right. This is a different city. We are no longer working the way we used to. There's a narrative of Seattle that is different out there in the rest of the world, at least in the conservative world, about what's happening here in the city. How would either of you pitch this city as a convention spot? today? Well, I, I think that looking at the convention is, is kind of looking at what is the draw of downtown. And really, I think people used to think of downtowns as solely for business. And now people, now that they're familiar with working from home, have a better work-life balance, are really looking to downtowns and city centers as centers of culture and community. And that may be how I would pitch a convention if there were to be one. There is a lot of culture, there's a lot of community looking at all of the surrounding things that you can get culture-wise from downtown and maybe not pitching it as this is the preeminent place to be for business because I think we're seeing business being separated from place across the board. I, I absolutely agree with Crystal because, I mean, even Amazon isn't renewing their contract. At first, the big draw was all the techie people down are down here and, like, all the business people are down here. Downtown life is not what it was before the pandemic. You know, I recently did a TikTok where I was like, oh, my God, Nike Town is closing. TikTok is almost at 100,000 views in less than a week. And it was 55,000 views in 24 hours. And a lot of the comments were saying downtown is unsafe. Some people were saying, I don't want to bring my kids downtown. Some people were saying, well, I'm not surprised because of what's happening downtown. No one's down there. Or others would be like, I don't even have a reason to go downtown anymore. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into where I just wonder, I don't know how this convention center is going to do. There certainly is that perception. I think um, that perception flies in the face of the data that um, we have received recently and even news of Companies like Walgreens, who have also closed downtown Seattle stores, initially blaming crime, but then recently admitting, okay, we overstated, 
the factor of crime and why we closed. It was more of an economic decision. But we do have to deal with perceptions and we do have to address that absolutely. And to Bayes's point, that is an active perception out there. I think that we overall just have to reorient how we do consider downtown crime. And, and I do think looking at the Downtown Seattle Association's recent report where they did say downtown worker foot traffic is 44% of what it was pre-pandemic. Oh. Those are the, the clients and the customers of movie theaters and restaurants and drug stores, and they just are not there like they used to be. So in order to revitalize that, we have to find a new draw that isn't necessarily centered around the business community. And like you said, Crystal, really, that perception versus the reality of what's happening is so powerful, right? Because psychologically, if people think they don't feel safe somewhere, they're not going to go there. So in some ways, we really have to bring it back even more than what we're mm -hmm. thinking to combat that narrative. Well, whether or not you want to go downtown, you do need a way to get around you too. So here's some good news for people who could use some resources. The city's partnering with SDOT to get more than 10,000 Seattle Housing Authority residents an unlimited use ORCA card. The three-year program is meant to help relieve the cost burden of transit for people living in affordable housing, and it's running through December 2026. So that's a good long time to figure out how to pay for it longer. Funnily enough, though, it seems like somehow you can get an ORCA card for free or subsidized all over this city. If you're under 18, you're riding for free. A lot of people get it from their employer. If you're on SSI, you're probably going to get a free ORCA card. I wonder, are we inching towards free transit? You know, Olympia has it. Just get on and go. And when Olympia decided to make transit free, more people started riding it. It was like a fun thing. Like you felt like you were getting something for free, like it was a service. When I was younger, there were certain times and certain days where the fare was free. Mm -hmm. Sure. So to me, as someone that was actually local and experienced that, it's interesting that there's a possibility or even a thought that it could be free again, because I'm like, well, <laughs> why did we change what was going on before? Or why wasn't it just free in the first place? Like, why wasn't it just always free? That's the million dollar question. Why were we paying for it in the first place? I think that that this is really a time for a conversation about how we subsidize our different forms of transit and travel and what we actually expect from people paying fares. In the best case scenarios, people paying fares for transit only accounts for 20, 25% of the entire cost. So we're already subsidizing most of it, but we're subsidizing so much less of transit than we are of car transportation and road transportation, single use driving. We subsidize all of the environmental impacts from that. We subsidize paying for roads. Like that's an automatic thing that people don't seem to question when looking at the impact on roads is dramatic. We spend so much time and resources, so much money in maintaining those, building those, expanding those, and for what, to be stuck in traffic and, and to deal with all of the other costs. We don't bat an eyelash at all of the infrastructure the streetlights, the traffic control, the, you know, all of the enforcement associated with driving. And I think we're at a point now where driving is really expensive, right? Like owning a car, paying yeah, for is. insurance, paying for gas, paying for, for everything associated with a car. 
I have been carless for the last two years. Right? <laughs> You're so, carless, Besa. You know, I used to live in Renton, and I was like, I don't want to be in traffic all the time. So that's why I actually moved downtown. But eventually, I got rid of my car. I'm like, between gas and maintenance and paying for parking downtown, it's like $200 a month. I was like, meh. That's a really interesting point about how much we subsidize our vehicle traffic. This is really a public service. If you want to get out of traffic, if you want to reduce traffic, the answer is actually not building an additional lane. That actually makes traffic worse. It's called induced demand. It's a real thing. If we want to reduce traffic, invest in transit. Move people out of cars, into buses, onto trains, onto rapid transit. This is how we do that. This benefits everybody. It reduces less harmful chemicals and pollutants in our air. It reduces childhood asthma and other respiratory diseases. I hope we move further in expanding free transit. Different cities are doing that. I think Boston is looking at doing that. We should absolutely be doing the same. Yeah. And I made a joke about fare jumpers. But, you know, if you do pay the fare, 275 a ride does add up over an entire month. And we can factor in inflation and all the other things that are picking away at your paycheck every week. That's a good chunk of change. That's a good chunk of change. One last thing before we go. Well, even when we get the things we need, sometimes those things can be kind of bland. The New York Times took a tour of three major cities propping up multifamily housing and found, surprise, people had the same complaints in all three. Everything looks the same. Big boxes with slaps of color on them. Mudede called the Legoland-type architecture abominations. New York Times went for bland. Where do you stand on this? I loathe the sameness of it all. Mm. And and just seeing everything fit the same cookie-cutter pattern going up everywhere, it does take away from the character. You don't necessarily know whether, you know, you see a skyline, you see buildings, you see a look, and you think different cities. You don't necessarily do that. But... This is really an issue of regulation and of like zoning issues of design review where the requirements that we are putting on these developers, even down to the parking requirements, really dictate how these buildings have to look and be. And they're really enforcing a regulatory sameness on this. And to me, it's always been the variety that has really provided character. And, you know, if an ugly building goes up, some people love it. Some people hate it. Right. But but the variety to me and the, the character comes from that. That's generally how I feel. I agree. I think when I first started noticing it, I was um, still going to the Art Institute of Seattle and I started noticing like these box like buildings popping up. And I was like, <laughs> what is this? But it was different at that time. Mm -hmm. Now everything looks the same. And it's like Crystal was saying, wanting everyone to be the same, wanting everyone to do things the same, wanting everyone to kind of like fall into a certain line. I enjoy having that one purple house and that one yellow house and then that one apartment building that's short and, and the one that's a sky. You know, like it gives personality to where you live. I don't want my apartment or my home to look like the next person's home. You know, it also makes it to mm. where you're a little bit confused when you're downtown and every single block <laughs> looks exactly the same, you know? So that's true. <laughs> I think it takes away from a lot of the personality that we used to have within this city to where everything is just like straight up and down or just like real boxy. It's true. You know, though, could be worse. Could be the 80s. Remember stucco? Like, we have come a long way from stucco. 
So I don't remember <laughs> Stucco. I was born in '89. <laughs> I was not born in 89, but I'm dating uh, myself. Okay, Crystal, let's talk about some of those stucco buildings, right? They are still around town. You know what? But there was a variety and, and there was more acceptance of, of difference. I think through design review and so many of these things, these boards, these kind of checks have been put into the process that are so afraid of building something ugly or something mm -hmm. that doesn't, you know, quote unquote, match the character of the neighborhood that they've that they've taken out all creativity, right? They, they are basically enforcing a uniformity because they're afraid of something not fitting the character. But doing that, they are removing all of the character. So I, I just wish there was freedom to, to exactly like basis said. I love the purple house. I love, mm -hmm. you know, something cute, creative, different, quirky here and there. Like that is what personality is instead of just, you know, cookie cutter little boxes all over the place. Um, it just, I, I do want us to get back to a place where we can build to meet the needs and the desires of the people who are going to be part of the community and not people trying to enforce a past that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. The city has eight design review boards for each district made up of volunteers, and those are the ones who are using design guidelines to determine if a building might be a good fit for a neighborhood. So they're all getting together <laughs> and working it out. Because, they're like, well, uh, this looks like the one we approved last week. That'll work. <laughs> At least we're building secure, efficient spaces. The New York Times reports Seattle built a record high of 13,000 units last year. And, you know, people hated the Smith Tower when it first came around. Is this the kind of architecture that over time could feel like an important part of the city? I think that happens because they move on to a new same thing. And whatever the past thing was is different. I think that's what we like about it. It's the difference. <laughs> so do I think that this could happen with the stuff that remains from now? Absolutely. But it's because we'll be wanting a change from whatever the new same becomes. I do miss the Smith Tower vibes, man. <laughs> and maybe that goes into what Crystal just said to where it's like once everything is, you know, recreated, you're like, man, I want more of that. Because that one thing that people hated is now a sore thumb in the best way because it's the one thing that actually stands out. Nostalgia is a wonderful, funny thing. And we can all agree that stucco is freaking ugly. So we can leave it there. I am anti-stucco. <laughs> Basa Gordon is the digital manager at Converge Media. You can also hear her on the air from 7 to 12 a.m. on Hits 106.1. And Crystal Fincher, political consultant and host of Hacks and Wonks. Really appreciate you two. Thanks for staying. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. Brandy Fullwood produced today's show. The show was also produced by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Claire McGrain, Jenny Cecil Moore, Vaughn Jones, and Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you Monday. 